they became so successful in the end that the, like the hedgerows in England just ran out of elderflower. Anybody creative trying to break new ground is going to have to take risk. That is great people management from someone who would easily say, I don't have the time. Hello and welcome to The Common Creative. My name is Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And we're on a mission to capture and celebrate the tools and techniques of creativity. And today we have a special guest. Yes, we have a special guest today, Gary Flynn. Gary's a chef that's had a many and varied career. Uh, he's worked around the world. He's worked in UK and London for many years. He had a famous restaurant in Noosa called Artis. And he's here today to tell us a story about elderflower cordial. Welcome, Good morning. Gary. Yeah, thank you very much. Paul and Chris, nice to be here. Thank you. Um, well, I, I guess to start, I'm from Brisbane originally, did my apprenticeship here in Brisbane and decided after a short time that Brisbane in the early 80s wasn't a place to further your culinary career. So I decided to um, take a, up an invitation with some friends to go travelling, which we did for about 18 months uh, after that, I decided, um, they all decided to head home and um, I decided to forward on to Brisbane, uh, uh, to London. And from there, I was fortunate enough to get a job in a great little restaurant in Soho called Escargo, which for a little boy from Brisbane in the early 80s was quite a phenomenal place where I used to stand in the kitchen. There was a list of all those that had reserved a seat coming in for the restaurant and I, I had to do a double take my very first morning. I looked at it and there was George Harrison, a couple of guys from Monty Python uh, and, and the list just went on and on and on. I was astounded because in those days in Brisbane, the most famous person you would have seen would have been Mike Higgins at the underground and everyone would have been pointing and, and going, wow, Mike Higgins. So it was quite an astounding place. Even leaving work, I used to pass, you know, the Monty Python guys, I think it one of them had a studio around the corner in Soho Square. Anyway, after a year there, I decided I'd, the decision was either to go home or maybe work in the English countryside, which I, um, I opted for because um, with our trip when we were backpacking, we decided to leave England as quickly as possible because it was, we were using up our Aussie dollars very quickly and we wanted to avoid work for as long as possible <laughs> while we were doing that. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job in a tiny little village in the Cotswolds called Nailsworth, which was about four miles from Stroud, which had been quite a successful centre for manufacturing during the Industrial Revolution. There were lots of old warehouses, factories in the area. The railway station was quite a substantial railway station, which usually gave it away that that town would have been quite a successful town in its day. But I... I I had a job with um, a company called Williams Kitchen and Williams Kitchen catered for the royal family. You know, it was called the Royal Triangle. We had Princess Anne, Prince Charles and Diana and um, the Kents were up there as well. So it was, once again, for me, it was a phenomenal place. I used to go up to Princess Anne's place and carve turkey on Christmas Day and it was um, really quite an experience. We used to go up to Charles and Di's and do some catering up there. Uh, and uh, after a few years there, I decided to take on my 
the, the restaurant that I've been working on, I made an offer to the owner, William, and, and, and he agreed. And so I worked there, had my own restaurant there for about three and a half years. But in that, that time, I became very friendly with family who lived not far from the restaurant, Bob and Gladys, who were just the most delightful people. And they had a beautiful English country garden that used to, and they used to allow me to go up there and ravage their garden with all manner of freshly grown produce. And Bob and Glad had two gorgeous daughters. One, Shireen, was married to a gorgeous man, Kit. Kit and Shireen Morris. Now, they were the most delightful people on the planet. Uh, and Kit was by... Um, was a professor of botany and at the time was making Pinot Noir for an English wine company called Three Choirs. Now, I knew them for a few years, obviously, and they we used to go to their place and they'd come to our place and we'd go out together and long, long, long walks in the countryside, as you do over there. So I spent a fortune on buying the right wellies and, the, <laughs> and the, all the right gear. And um, so they, they were a really gorgeous couple and over, over a period of time, Kit decided that he wanted to produce his own grapes. Now, Shireen's dad, Bob, had a mate who had vacant property on the Isle of Wight, and they very gladly let Kit plant vines over there. But, of course, they take years to mature, and in the meantime, Kit thought he might make perry, which is the pear equivalent to cider, and it was absolutely delicious. But, of course, there wasn't a market big enough for that, so Kit came up with the idea of making elderflower cordial. And in springtime in England, there is just a huge amount of elderflower growing in the hedges and the countryside. So over the first year, they gathered all the elderflower themselves uh, and then seeped it in syrup, a little bit of citric acid, and before you know it, you've got elderflower cordial. And over a year or so, they, they called it just... Bottle Green was the company... And they would go to all the country shows and people loved it. A little bit of elderflower cordial in water and they loved it. But it just wasn't selling off the shelves as well as they had hoped. So they decided, let's make an elderflower drink, which they called Presse. And it became an overnight success. And Waitrose, Woolies, Colt, you name it, they all, they all wanted elderflower Presse. So they, they did so, so very, very well uh, and... They continued to do well. Now, in the meantime, um, we had left the Cotswolds after five years and had went back to London. I worked in London again for another couple of years. Uh, my final year there, I actually worked for my first chef at Lascargo, Martin Lamb, who was a really great man. And um, he worked at, had a little restaurant in Battersea. Uh, and for me, it was an absolute joy because it was only across the Thames from where I lived, which is just unheard of that you walk to work in London. So um, I worked there for a year with him. And then we decided ultimately to come back to Australia. And we were tossing because my partner at the time lived in Perth. I lived in Brisbane. So distance was a real problem. So, but you decided after a long conversation that we'd stay in, um, in Brisbane. And I was fortunate enough to end up in Noosa. And I was, I was able to get a job at um, Artis in the early days. And I was very fortunate because the owners of Artis were both English. I found it very difficult to get, even though I'd been in England for a number of years and worked in Michelin-starred hotels, <laughs> I couldn't get a job because everyone thought I'd been away long enough. But because the Hortons were English, 
they of course realised that they'd known where I'd worked. They recognised it. Then they thought, okay, we'll take this guy on. And um, so now after a year or so working there, Kit and Shireen kept promising they'd come out and they did one year. Eventually they came out. And when they did come out, we decided that we'd, they would send a barrel of elderflower syrup out to us and we would attempt to have a go at the elderflower um, presse in Australia. Uh, and so I, I grabbed Kit and fortunately there was a very well-known, established, very old uh, drinks family in Karoi of all places uh, that's well known, very well known. And I took Kit up to meet the owner and we had a chat about the possibility of producing the drink there and it was all go. I allowed Kit to ask all the relevant questions and they agreed that it was it was possible. I just had to organise the bottles. He suggested the right bottle size. It was very, very helpful. And um, everything was go. So two months later, we received an enormous barrel of elderflower syrup. I went up to check with the drinks company. Everything's okay. We, we imported the bottles. Over that time that we were waiting for the syrup to arrive, I was liaising with a, uh, a lovely um, art student, uh, Malulaba, uh, to organise bromides for the um, labels on the bottles uh, and that developed over a period of time and so we um, everything was set to go, the syrup arrived and uh, it was delivered up to Kuroi. Everything was going well, the production went really well and uh, so we had 250 cases of the elderflower presse on hand and the important thing we discovered was that it needed to be refrigerated now this is one one aspect of it that we didn't really realize at the time and it also turns out that when you're making drinks like this there's a particular filter that the drinks company use and the, the filter that this particular company had the finest one they had wasn't fine enough to remove all the natural yeast products that are in a natural product like elderflower cordial so most drinks we receive, we, we buy today, they're all sorts of syrups and, and flavourings, etc. But this was a natural product and anyone that produces it realises that this, this final filter is the one that's required to remove all those active ingredients. Uh, and um, over the period of time that we were storing it, of course, it unfortunately started to ferment, which was a great disappointment because I'd sold, I'd sold about 30 cases and those people that drank it straight away were overwhelmed. They loved it and everyone put in more orders. I had the local fruit and veg supplier, I gave him a case because he was storing my syrup. I gave him a few cases actually. He loved it and he wanted to be the distributor in the Sunshine Coast. <laughs> and one thing, once you live in Noosa, there's one thing you realise, if you want to introduce a new product gradually onto the market, Noosa is a great place for it because Noosa attracts the most extraordinary people, not just locally or nationally but internationally the most extraordinary people come there and if there's a product they like they'll take that away with them as a, even as a souvenir and before you know it you've created a, a market for it so it became very very popular very very quickly but then i started to read phone calls that um you know things weren't tasting great and um so i went down to examine the the bottles that we were storing and that they'd all fermented unfortunately so we had to um, unfortunately destroy all all the bottles. When I phoned Kit later on, he realised that. Um, <laughs> and this is an interesting thing about any meeting, isn't it? Any any conclusion you're trying to come to, 
you might come away with it later on is one question you didn't ask. One <laughs> final question you didn't ask. And the one final question that he didn't ask was, is your filter fine enough to remove? And the Kick, they did come out a number of years later and he said he apologised. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. I think that was, he said, I just, I just assumed it would do that. Um, and, of course, I still had this huge barrel of syrup and I did. I asked, I rang a number of drinks companies and the, the closest one in Australia at that particular time was in Adelaide and just the tyranny of distance and the economics just made it completely unviable in a place like a, a finite market like Australia and England, it's okay because you've got 55, 60 million people in an area that's, you know, the tenth the size of Australia. And if you get 0.1% of that market, then you've done really well, <laughs> whereas in Australia it just doesn't quite work out that way. Um, so that was, that was a great disappointment. And interesting, though, I, you know, I've thought about it many times, obviously, and I hadn't thought about it for a long time until I spoke to you last, Paul. <laughs> you wanted to hear about it. <laughs> But, I, you know, there was that, that financial disappointment, obviously. There wasn't a huge outlay because they very generously sent out the syrup. Um, I did spend a bit of time on it, and, but it was a great, it was an adventure and we were very excited. And, and the interesting thing was it would have been a success, you know, a small success, but a success all the same, had we managed to um, reduce that amount of the yeast um, effect. I think... The great disappointment on reflection was the fact that I'd spent such a long time in the Cotswolds and I, you know, I'd had a restaurant there, I bought a house there and, and for all intents and purposes, we were set to stay. And uh, in a Bob and Glad, were the, that, like, they were second, it was like a second family for me, Kit and Shurishering were like brothers and sisters. And I think it was that, it was that loss of contact, that last connection I had with the Cotswolds, that I, I think that in reflection was the most disappointing part of what happened. That you didn't have that continued connection. I didn't. With, I, with I, that, you know, that, there would have been had that great, as tenuous yeah. as it was, it was just that tiny little lifeline back to, back to, that. Back to a time that occupied everything. I was just so uh, intently uh, working hard and making it a success over there. Mm-hmm. And I was a year or two away from being in the Michelin Guide, which would have made me the first Australian chef restaurateur to be in the Michelin Guide they'd been in and had and very kindly had a chat to us which direction we should be going in. And so from that perspective, it was, you know, things were exciting and it was a beautiful part of the country. We had some wonderful, wonderful friends there. So a, what, a remarkable thing, having friendships in England is that, and you know this, Chris, that the English have a tendency to judge you as soon as you open your mouth. <laughs> okay? They have a tendency to do that. And, and, and some of them are so good at it, they can almost pinpoint what part of town you come from. Well, in England, in London yeah. in particular, because, you know, yeah. that. and it's quite extraordinary. Our, the remarkable thing about being Australian over there is that they, they, the only way they can judge you is whether or not they like you. And... You know, it turns out that we were we were reasonably likable, and you know, people used to come to the restaurant. And they liked that we were doing. They liked the atmosphere, and we had such an eclectic bunch of English friends, and it was hysterical that when we when we had a party, they all got on like a house on fire. But none of them ever invited 
each other. Each other <laughs> to another, to one of their Ds. We were the only ones that turned up. And we made the mistake, we realised this once, we made the mistake of inviting friends to another friend's place without them knowing. We just thought they were with us anyway. Yeah, we thought yeah. we'll just take them along just for a drink. We realised straight away, as soon as we walked in the door, we never do this again <laughs> because they just weren't. They just, and it was, it was funny. Although the, we loved them all dearly. It was quite interesting. That's um, that is very interesting. I think it's actually a very good segue uh, back to uh, back to the story, because you know we all have these filters uh, that we we go through, and, and and you are actually a filter or a catalyst for your uh, for your friends uh, for them to get together. And your big downfall was yeah, a filter. That, that fine filter that does let them through the um, front door. That's we, we we did we, we we like to you know unpack you know to get to the uh, the creative essence of the story. And, and you've actually given us to it straight away about the thing. You know the the big lesson is there's that one last question. You know? One last question, <laughs> uh, which is a moral to the story. Yeah. There's one last question. So I wanted to actually uh, earlier when we were speaking, and you were speaking with Chris, who's, who's English, as you know. And you were talking about the oh, taste. Oh, sorry, Chris. The, 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 the taste, <laughs> the taste. No, I wish I could judge you for that, but, you know, <laughs> that's difficult. The, the taste of the, you're talking about the, the very peculiar taste, what you know, attracted you to this idea of the uh, elderberry flower, besides the fact of the connection back to the Cotswell. You were just describing that taste earlier. Um, it is, it has a, a it, it's one of those unique flavours that does well, either savoury or sweet. Um, I used to make a, a, a duck sauce, which was like a caramelised elderflower cordial, just to create that sharpness to it and take the sweetness away from it uh, and then garnish it with elderflower. And that was successful over there. And I did try it. I did access some elderflower cordial here um, many years ago from somewhere, but it, it just didn't sell. People weren't willing to take that gamble uh and of course in the mid 90s nobody knew what it what it was the closest thing anyone had ever come to is that Elton John song elderberry wine that would have been as close as anyone had ever come to it and i just it's a lovely spray of flowers isn't it krista delicate little white thousands of little tiny white flowers and i i've made elderflower cordial and i know the secret is you you steep the flowers in hot water very quickly. They need to put oh, them out again because right. the, the flavours are so delicate. It's too much hot water on them and it, it kills yeah, the right. flavour. Um, so if anyone's listening, do try it. It's, it's, I think one of the great advantages, it's, a, it's, um, it's an adult flavour and so many floral mm. flavours kind of get very sweet and they sort of seem to be for kids, but this is quite a sophisticated, um, slightly dusty flavour, I would call it. Um, very yeah. light, very delicate. Yeah, you're right. It's floral without being overpowering, I think. Um, I think the only alternative is that, you know, you know my wife likes a lychee martini, but occasionally we'll have an elderflower one instead. And that's that's a nice alternative. If you like those sort of, like an elderflower right, martini, right. Then, sorry, a, a lychee martini, then an elderflower one would be a nice alternative. Yeah, I, I want to ask a question about, bouncing back because what I, what I heard in the story is you, you put yourself out there, took a big risk on the elderflower presse and it obviously didn't work out. And yeah, it must've been devastating to have done all that hard work and to, to try this. And that would be tempting at that point to kind of give up or to kind of retreat. 
how did you bounce back from that? Well, I, I tried to bounce back by um, finding an alternative bottling facility. And uh, as I said, the only uh, result was Adelaide, as far as I could see. The economics didn't work. So the, the, my veg supplier, who had been storing my elderflower very kindly in a corner of one of his storerooms, uh, he stored it there for a couple of years while I tried to find an alternative uh, because I still had all the bromides, everything everything ready to go. I had I'd probably about 5,000 labels ready to go. Yeah, there must be a just, moment when you decided, I, I've got to move on. This isn't going to work out. I've yeah. looked everywhere I can. I need to kind of move on. Um, my question is how you make that decision and yeah. how you – is was there anything positive you could take out of it apart from this always ask that extra question? Well, the positive I took out of it was that it was exciting to do. It was it was fun to do with Kit and Shireen. Uh, and as because I, I you know I used to help them put the labels on the first bottles before they had a, a a machine to do it. We used to glue the labels and put it on for them. I'd go there on my days off and and help them. You know, and just and you know we would talk for hours about their struggle to try and get because they struggled as well because you know obviously the grapes were going to take years to mature the the perry wasn't as successful as it we probably drank more than they ever sold actually in <laughs> in, in their beautiful garden uh and so we chatted for hours for, you know over a couple of years about it uh and it, as i said it wasn't and they went to every country show in southern england to try and get it off the ground it wasn't until they carbonated it that it became a success. And from what I could see and what I found out, like the, the supermarket system over there is a little bit more helpful for products like that, whereas when I made inquiries here, it, it, was, it was a bit more dog-eat-dog environment from what I could understand, particularly in the soft drink business because it's dominated by some huge, very powerful players. And... You know, I, I used to go to the Coles at, at Noosa a lot and you'd see these fabulous labels come up in small boutique drink companies and they'd be there for a year or so and then gone and, and gone and gone and, and gone and, and then just went over and over and over and over again. I would um, guess a supermarket like Waitrose in the UK would be very welcoming. They, they love locally yeah. made stuff. They really celebrate natural ingredients. And, and from what I could see, it was the first product of its type in England as well, that utilised something from the hedgerows, essentially. Uh, and then over the years, um, he came when he, they did come over here. You know, we experimented. We had some syrup, and we experimented with ginger with it and lemongrass. Because you know, the lemongrass they were they were buying over there was was frozen. Or, so I I did show him what it was like to get fresh lemongrass and the difference in aroma and flavour. So, I, went, um, I went to a gin distillery recently, locally. It's in Manly. And their best-selling gin uses bits of seaweed that are harvested in that wild in, along the northern oh. beaches. And I think that's part of the romance. It's not, this isn't a kind of manufactured thing. It's, it's gathered from completely natural ingredients. I'm sure elderflower would have the same thought, that it's from the hedgerows. You couldn't get a more natural, more yeah. organic, more... Um, delicate i suppose way of gathering flavors yeah even the name elderflower just just rolls off the tongue so mm, beautiful and it just it just you can't say it without hearing 
birds chirping <laughs> in the background. That's your right. You know? so, uh, but they, they became so successful in the end that the, that the hedgerows in England just ran out of elderflower. They, were, they had to start importing it from Eastern Europe. Wow. In fact, they were getting in one stage. They did. They became enormously successful. Uh, they've subsequently sold it and live a lot of their time in the south of France and in Portugal. Uh, we're getting in trouble with the local green groups because they believed because the elderflowers weren't maturing to elderberry, so therefore the bird populations were suffering from not having <laughs> enough food. That's uh, well, look. I, I think it's very interesting because you know what you described there in in the answer to Chris's question about the lesson you learned. You know, it, it's that classic thing about it. It's, it's about the journey, not mm. the. Not the destination. Yeah. You, know, you, you had a destination in mind, mm. but what you really loved and what you've taken from it as a as a positive memory is the fact of this. You know, this this lovely journey with these people and experimenting and trying stuff. And yeah, well, they were great friends, uh, and it was a great great product. You know, financially, it was the minimum. Whatever was the minimum run at the bottle shop at the bottling line, I, I did. I bought the minimum amount of bottles, the minimum amount of this. Probably at the end of the most time I spent was designing the labels, this young girl at Maluba, right. and making sure I had all the, you know, the, the legal requirements that would fit on, on the, the label. label. Yeah. Eric, can, so, I, can um, we jump in? But one thing you said, it, it was fun, you know, hand applying these labels. And, yeah. and I got this feeling of you rolling your sleeves up and getting involved in the whole process. Uh, I'd love to find out why it was fun. And, and the reason I want to know is that we, Paul and I, bang on and on about the role of creativity in business. And we think there's a big gap and not enough businesses are creative enough. And I don't think we've really explored the fact that it's, it's actually just fun to be creative. So why was it fun to kind of get stuck into to applying labels by hand and what was fun about that whole process? Well, once again, Chris, I think because they were such good friends and we wanted to help them, we would talk as friends. It wasn't, it wasn't work. We were talking about, you know, what was possible. And, of course, we weren't the only ones there. Um, Bob and Glad would come down and help and, and um, Shireen's sister would come down and help and there'd be other friends there as well. So it became quite a communal effort to try and get the business off the ground. But in the meantime, I was also working. You know, I had my own restaurant, so, you know, creativity was a very important aspect of that. Um, and in those days, don't forget that, you know, there was no internet. There was no, there's nothing. It, so if you wanted to learn a recipe, you either had to try and go to a library, buy a magazine with a recipe in it, or work for someone for six months who would then eventually give you the recipe for that particular item. So, you know, or you had to dabble in your own kitchen to try and find something. I, I was a bit fortunate over there because I'd been in Australia just long enough uh, so, you know, I was able to introduce things like ginger, for example, hadn't been introduced in food very much over there. Things like lemongrass, coconut milk. I'd, I'd started to introduce that in some of my food. I even did like a variation of a pavlova, like a deconstructed pavlova thing that was very successful there, continually working on my own business and my own work. So it was almost, um, it was clearing the headspace from that perspective working with them it's like you guys you're working in an office all day you know you don't do that all day you like to get out you go cycling or you know i'm for i love rowing rowing is my thing i haven't done it for a while but i just find it such a clearing of the head such a beautiful experience to be on the water 
with, and I think it's a team thing as well. I've always been, even at school I played rugby, I loved being a member of a team. Um, and so being in, in, in a boat with seven other guys, there's a, you know, early in the morning, trying to work towards a, a similar goal is a great experience. So clearly this, the, the disappointment of the, of the run of Presse not working didn't fracture your relationship. You can imagine friends falling out over this, and it, it sounds like it didn't. No, no, we were, we were great friends, great friends. And, and to the, still, they still come out. They are out last year, and, um, and uh, no, nothing, <laughs> nothing would fracture that. As I said, it, it wasn't a huge financial expense for me uh, and the, the time the time put into it I really enjoyed it, it was a terrible disappointment there's no doubt about it but I um, and he was I could sense that he was more disappointed than I was because he felt responsible for its demise because he didn't ask that one <laughs> damn question that um, but you know mind you to be fair to, to Kit he did Try and communicate that this is a this is a live product. You know, will right. your filter can it can it actually clear it? Yeah. And you know, they said yes, 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 yes to everything. Yes. Yeah. So maybe they maybe they've never worked with a product that like that before. Um, well, uh, I'll tell you. I obviously that. contacted them and they said no, we can't we can't yeah. filter that out. Uh, maybe in hindsight, I should have offered to buy whatever the filter was required or maybe the, the machinery wasn't able to do it. To take I don't, it. I don't might know. Be, might be the pressure, you know, or something. Who knows? Yeah. I think to me, I'm, I'm hearing that anybody trying something new, anybody creative trying to break new ground is going to have to take risk. And inevitably, sometimes those risks pay off and sometimes they don't. And, and yeah. uh, it sounds like a story to be celebrated. Uh, for me, the big disappointment is that when it started to ferment, it didn't make an even better but alcoholic product. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> everyone in Newsome was going, this is really good now. Yeah, I did try it. <laughs> yeah, I did try it. I did think maybe we can not let this go to waste. And to these days, you know, these days, like fermentation is all the rage in culinary circles. Maybe I could have thought about, if it happened today, maybe we would have thought about something like that. Where's the syrup? Did it eventually get... Uh... Oh, did, yeah, they, they removed it, unfortunately. So that was, um, that was disappointing. Uh, it kept very well. I don't know maybe you kept it because yeah. it would have you could have you could have bottled that right. as um as a cordial, I suppose. Right. As itself. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's a look. That's a fantastic story, Gary. And it sounds like we could sit here and chat for hours, but I think that probably well wraps us up. Do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've learned the importance of asking that one extra question, especially when you've got all that production all lined up. And so ask that extra question. And a lovely reminder that being creative is fun, especially if it's with people you know. And in work, we need to have more people to have fun as well as to be more creative. So I've really enjoyed listening to you. Thank you so much, Karen. I think the issue to, to make keep in mind when you are creating is to realise at the end of the day, whoever you're creating something for, their view is completely subjective. You know, it doesn't matter what you create. You could love it, but other people might not. So you've got to be prepared. And that's, create, that's what creativity is. It's, it's creating something from nothing. So who knows how many people are going to enjoy it. And God knows I've created a lot of stuff to put on plates. <laughs> and, you know, I've got people don't hate it and I've got people who love it. So well, we, it's yeah. very subjective. We, we talked about this last week, actually, and there's uh, a word called frisson, 
the definition of thrill, but it's halfway between excitement and fear. Mm. And the idea of when you put something out there, you know, you, you had this moment of friction. Mm. And from that point, it's subjective. And you have to then have your self-belief that it's, you know, that it's what you did was good, even if mm. someone doesn't like it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, take it on board. You know, it may not work. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, I, I can, yeah, I, as a chef, I'd never really thought about that. But that's something that you're constantly doing because you obviously have to constantly improve dishes and change dishes and, you know. Change you know, it. Even just the way you present it can somehow yeah. transform something into something delicious rather yeah. than something that isn't yeah, just yeah. by the way it looks yeah, yeah. it can look more appetizing but you i mean you're a man that you build something that's it it's done <laughs> you know the only thing you do is, is paint it <laughs> you know so well, at least i can just change a bit of parsley around for example but we well, don't drive down that street anymore yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's certainly lots lots i've done that I've, that have never been published do you think that you know ultimately because you know, I've only ever heard of elderflower from you. Like, you know, you think it would have been like, you know, maybe today, you know, say with the internet, you know, you know, the idea could spread. But 20 years ago, I wonder whether people would have gone, well, what the hell is this? You yeah, know, they like, did. Um, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. What the But hell? do you think it was exotic enough uh, to people to go, yeah, we we'll want to give this a go? Mm. Um, do you think? Or? I, I, uh, well, I tried. Yeah, I made it with duck. I used to serve it with duck in noosa and it never really never really took off i used to do exactly the same dish in the cotswolds and it was popular right especially during the holiday period when all the londoners used to come out to the country used to be very popular with them but not not quite so much with aussies it took a little while Mm. gary i used to work in drinks marketing that's my background and one of the brands i was responsible for in the uk is angus the rabitters Oh, right. it's, yeah. it's another one of those, from, the, from a British point of view. It's another one of those drinks where people, I, I, I don't know what to do with it. It's kind of when yeah. do I, in Australia, it's very different because everyone knows lemon lime and bitters. Yeah. And the one thing that saved our souls every year was at Christmas. There was a TV show as the BBC food and wine show. And they would do a little segment on it's Christmas coming up as parties. If you're driving, then this is the cocktail to go for. And you take yeah. tonic water and put two dash drops of, Angostura in it, and that's really good if you're driving. It's a lovely... And every year, they had this sales blip, and people would buy another bottle of Angostura bitters, and that would last them yeah. for the whole year. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like it needed something like that, because elderflower... When do, you, when do you get the elderflower out? It's yeah. no particular moment. But if one person would just say, on Easter, it's the perfect thing to go with your whatever, or something, everyone goes, ah, oh, that's the moment I get elderflower out. I tell you, there's one thing I had to go at also was Tabasco in Noosa. The guy that I had a guy working for me, <laughs> he said, Gary, he was a barman. Gary, we have to make Tabasco. He said, think of all the Tabasco that's made in the world. Let's just make Tabasco. So, you know, we dabbled with Tabasco and you might know him, Grant. He used to work down at Echo. Um, he works at Echo. He's PJ right now. He wasn't the guy. There was a guy that did that chili sauce. He used to sell it out of uh, <laughs> the, the butcher. That's my recipe. The butcher. Like this, isn't he? <laughs> Chris has got his own called chili. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we Gary, called my, it. We, my, we did it. And for all intents and purposes, it tasted exactly like Tabasco. We bought bottles exactly like Tabasco bottles and did the Noosa, Noosa chili something asco, like something fiasco. <laughs> and... Um, 
Yeah, once again, we sold a few, a couple of the bars. We gave it to the bars and I was, I was just thinking, I thought you were going to say you, you were going to make your own bitters because bitters are sold around the world. It's, yeah, they are. I there's no, no alternative. Yes. I make, I make my own chilli sauce. I didn't make this bottle, but my, my business is called Chilli Sauce. Okay. Not that we make it. it it's, it's designed to add spice to thinking. So that's why. It's ah, right. Okay. It's a metaphor. It's not a real sauce. Yeah. <laughs> Well, creativity is a really difficult thing. You know, having had a couple of businesses myself and my wife's in business, you almost need, you have to be open to someone else's perspective. And I think like, you know, other people, when you're a young chef, there's an arrogance that you have. I'm talking about my own experience yeah, yeah, here no. as well. That, you know, you, there's an arrogance you have and you have to think, you have to put this in context as well. You know, I, I was a chef in my late 20s, early 30s at a time when Marco White, was the be-all and end-all, worldwide almost. He just took the world by storm. And his attitude, a lot of young chefs felt that's the attitude you needed to have. And a lot of customers thought that's the attitude you want. And that's the sort of food you have to drink. That's the presentation you have to provide. That's a service that everyone's expecting. So we were all caught up in this Marco White way of producing a product. And, you know, if Marco reacted in a certain way to something, then you felt almost compelled to do the same thing. I don't know if you remember him. I don't know if it was visible here, but he was everywhere over there. He had a two or three series on the BBC or Channel 4. And so, you know, we were all growing our hair. Well, I still had hair. You know, I had hair around my shoulders and, and, you know, it was all cranky and, and you were trying to be creative and you refused to do things that people asked for differences and and you soon realize as you you mature that that's not that's not the way it is you know and he realized himself that what he was doing was exactly what the viewer was soaking up they were soaking up whatever character he was they were soaking it up and and us in the profession in particular were soaking it up and we we all had to be over a period of time you realize that you know the customer is coming in for a reason coming into have a great night, have fun. And over, as you mature, you realise you've got to change your product and you have to listen to other people's perspective. And even, you know, you can move from one side of town to another. Like the expectations of the new farm crowd is very different to the expectations of Daisy Hill, for example. You have to see what your customer base wants. And from a culinary perspective, Gordon Ramsay did that really well when he did, you know, how are we going to improve these, this restaurant, the restaurant rescue? And he does. He goes out and asks the population, do you want to try this? What do you like? And if people like it out on the street, then they're more than likely going to like it inside as well. It's, um, it's, it's a remarkable example, that, because Gordon Ramsay, on the one hand, is the most arrogant, aggressive, full-of-himself chef you can imagine. But you're absolutely right. On the other hand, he knows how to ask questions, listen to the answers, and incorporate that into how he helps to reshape these. Yeah. You know, I used to think he was exactly as you described. You know, one thing I've noticed with chefs that are mentors, they keep, they keep their staff for a very long time. And, you know, if you look at Gordon Ramsay, he's had chefs work for him for years. And... I did watch, there was a program where they were developing a new menu for one of these new venues. And he sat down, there were six of them sitting and the chef 
had come out was designing the food. So he'd bring out a plate. He had these six, and he was a completely different man than the man that you see on TV. He was sitting down with his peers, and he said straight away, nothing personal. This is nothing personal. We're all here to see if this is going to work and how we think we can. So he made it very important for the chef who put their heart and soul into whatever they were putting on the plate that they realised this is nothing personal. There's no judgment here other than culinary judgment. That's it. And I thought, what a really great thing to do, to make that very clear right from the start. So he's not only, he's obviously a good businessman, but he's a great people manager as well. And um, my wife and I were very fortunate. We went to Cotswolds last year after me swearing I'd never go to the Cotswolds. We got invited to a wedding. (laughs) That was five minutes from where I lived in the Cotswolds, can you believe it? So, of course, we had to, had to go there. But on the way back through Heathrow, you want to been there. There's a Ramsey restaurant right there. And uh, so we decided, again, it was one of the best meals I had in, in, in London. It was, it was, it was airport, like, really tasty. The staff were great. And I asked, oh, does he come in very often? And they said, oh, no, he doesn't. But when he come, whenever he's in the airport, he always drops in, always says hello, always goes in the kitchen, sees how the guys are, if he's got time, he sits down, has a meal, always thanks everybody, great job. You know, what a, yeah. I thought that, that is great people management from someone who would easily say, I don't have the time, you know, and I want yeah. to go and sit on my own or yeah. I thought that was, that's a lesson in so how don't, to. Don't believe everything you see on TV. Management. Yeah. Well, as I was talking about Marco White, he realised that his persona—that's what was selling—and that's what we, that's that's what we that's what we want. And I met him once. My partner at the time was mani- managing a place called the Square in the city, which ended up being a multi-Michelin star place. And you know, after I'd finished work one night, I went up, I went to pick her up, and he was there. And he was a very imposing man. He was six foot two, six foot three, with hands like muttons. I shook his head. He was a big boy, and he was at the height of his power. So I guess it was a very brief meeting. Um, but, yeah, he was a very imposing young man. As was like Jamie Oliver. I don't know if you've ever met him. We did the book launch for him in Noosa many years ago, the very first book launch. So he's still only a kid. And he very kindly came in. To the kitchen and thanked everybody, uh, put on a performance. He's, he brought a mate with him who ended up being Ben O'Donoghue. And Ben O'Donoghue did a performance with a rolling pin that was, right. that's his famous party trick. I, I won't go into detail. <laughs> but um, he actually signed the rolling pin. And then two years later, he came for his own book launch. Right. And we presented the rolling pin on a, <laughs> on a plate. So, he, he thought that was quite funny, but he Jamie Oliver was really lovely. Yeah, well, that, well, that's been that's been great. That's been very entertaining and uh, and and a lot of fun itself. And if anyone's listening in, um, please write your comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. If you want to give us a rating, please give us a rating too. And join us next week for next week's episode of the Common Creative. Thank you very much, Gary. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Gary. It's been fantastic. <laughs>